the internet is full of goblins. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, like well sure. Episode. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're we're doing a thing that we're doing. Uh, we've done before on our Archdiocese uh, Patreon podcast, where uh, we have to recover something. So, uh, good luck, dear listener, because uh, we are doing something a little bit different than we normally do. So, um, hello, welcome to the Good Trash Honor Cast, where last week we talked about a movie you'll never discuss in film today's course. This week we're going to talk about it, but faster. And uh, <laughs> I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton, and I uh, will hopefully not have my audio uh, gobbled up by my need for privacy this time. Yeah, would you please get it together? Um, and, yeah. Well, I've really recentered myself since last week, Dustin. I'm a little less mad at Cruel Intentions. I don't feel the need to uh, yell at it quite so much. So, I, you know, I think uh, this is going to be a neater affair for everybody. I think it was for the best that uh, the, the gremlins and goblins had their way with uh, our files. Maybe we need yeah. to do a test run on every episode. <laughs> I've been saying this for years. You got to give me a try run. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about like, that, but Saturday, uh, like Saturday Night Live. Uh, in case you're tuning in for the first time, dear listener, this is unlike our other shows, but it's somewhat like them. This is what it's going to look like. We are going to spoil the movie, but we're going to wait till the end to do that. We'll do thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and then we're going to spoil it. That's how it's going to work. Uh, but before we get to that, we'll have a synopsis. Arthur, do you have that ready? Yes. So we're uh, we're going to explain how we're doing this. I just uh, did, didn't I? Well, did I think you could have used more detail. So I'll. I'll did jump you say in. we're doing Footloose and Cruel Intentions? He did not. Oh, yeah. I did not. Yeah, this is to two episodes. So yeah, the second half of this, we'll do the next movie, which is Footloose. So it's all one... horny, all horny teens, all the time. That's really what we're working with here. All right. So, <laughs> in this updated take on dangerous liaisons, two vicious step siblings of an elite Manhattan prep school make a wager to deflower the new headmaster's daughter before the start of term. She has flowers. I missed that part. Flowers in her hair. Da, da, dee, doo, 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 doo. I, I do like that we are going to try to continue the bit uh, about being oblivious about sex. That's fun. I'm glad if anything was going to make it uh, back over from the <laughs> last episode that, that it was this choice of, of comedy. <laughs> so, uh, well, there you go. That is what happens in the movie. Uh, let's go ahead and do a reaction. To, I believe you were the virgin watcher. Are you still a virgin watcher? I don't guess you are anymore. You're like doubly not because you've now watched it and talked about it at once but still you are the least experienced with cruel intentions arthur what is your reaction first my reaction to cruel intentions was what <laughs> um obviously this is a movie uh, i'd heard about through pop culture growing up uh, you know mtv movie awards uh the kiss heard around the world yada 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 uh it kind of memed itself into pop culture uh, not another teen movie so i mean it's a film I was aware of. I kind of knew that the there was a bet and they were step-siblings and yada, yada, yada. So uh, I had all that kind of reference material going into it, but I never really knew how it played out tonally, visually, etc. Um, and I was, I mean, it is what it is, right? It's, it's a, it is a, a piece of the 90s uh, that has become a kind of campy cult classic. I think in certain circles, uh, it is remembered somewhat fondly by many. Uh, some uh, have that uh, unironic love for it. Many have a very ironic love for it, uh, and, and it is kind of packed with uh, a, a list of they're going to be stars or were already hot young stars: uh, Ryan Philippe, Sarah Michelle Gellar, 
Selma Blair, Reese Witherspoon, uh, Joshua Jackson. Uh, I mean, it's a stacked little cast, and they're all fine. Uh, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar is the strongest of them. Uh, Reese is okay. Ryan is not, he feels like a kid playing grown up for the most part. And, and that's what this whole movie, I think, feels like. It feels like kids playing grown up. Uh, I don't think this one for one almost transposition of the, the source material, Dangerous Liaisons, works in this high school setting as well as you'd hope. You know, I think uh, an example of something that takes a more adult material and puts it in high school and it works as brick. Right. And so I, I think those kind of contrasting points kind of show really, really show the weaknesses of cruel intentions. I'm glad you referenced Brick Arthur because, yeah, that's a film where the kids, tr- kids playing at being adults feels like a deliberate choice. Right. As opposed to a, a muddled tone thing, which it, it more seems like it is here. Yeah, I, I think Brick handles it with a lot more uh, agility in, in, in lack of a better term. But uh I, I think, you know, there are some really cool, you know, from a production standpoint, from a, you know, economic standpoint, uh, as far as working within budgetary constraints, uh, Cruel Intentions does a lot really well. I think it looks great. I think uh, the the kind of use of uh, Philippe's modeling contracts and status to be able to get costumes, uh, it just shows a really smart sense of... Um, resourcefulness and so there are things about that i think i could appreciate and i think it does have a great look um so i I do think you know setting production design all that stuff looks really great cinematography is pretty good uh i I just don't i just can't buy into it what it's trying to do uh you know uh the the kind of nature of the material aside I, i think just from a completely objective viewpoint it just doesn't work as well as you would like to think it would on paper. So that's, you know, that's where I'm at. I, I'm pretty cold on this. I, I think it's, it's, I'm glad I finally watched it, but I don't feel like it added anything to my life, you know, and I could have honestly gone probably without seeing it and never missed anything. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say Dalton Stewart in reaction to your viewing of cruel intentions? Well, unlike Arthur, uh, I had seen this before. Uh, definitely a part of the generation of uh, teens that saw this on cable uh, instead of having a talk with their parents about sex because, you know, that's part of the country we're from. And uh, that's how it goes sometimes uh, with having a home that has basic cable. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I obviously had a history with this movie, uh, being one of those people that kind of had it as a you know foundational cornerstone of their I don't know, sexuality maybe, uh, or at the very least, uh, you know, just a part of their subconscious they can't shake. Uh, so I, I was curious to, to revisit. You know, I I'm obviously was aware it's kind of had this continued cult status, hadn't really thought about it in a very long time. Um, I am thinking now, though, uh, about whether it's Philippi or uh, Philippe. I'm going to go with Philippe because it's making me happy when Arthur says it, but I do think it's actually Philippi. Um, anyway, th- that's neither here nor there. Revisiting the film was gross and icky, and I didn't like it at all. Uh, it felt bad, uh, like a like stepping into a giant Ziploc bag full of, uh, I don't know, uh, gravy. I wish I'd pick anything other than gravy, but that's what I picked. Uh, it felt bad. Uh, I'm going to read some quotes uh, from uh, uh, some reviews that were contemporary to the film's release. Um, well, actually, I take that back. One of these is from Salon.com, so this probably wasn't contemporary. But I'm just going to go ahead and, uh, I don't know, I pulled these from Wikipedia. I think they are useful. 
CharlesTaylorSalon.com described it as the dirtiest-minded American movie in recent memory, and an honestly corrupt, entertaining picture is never anything to sneeze at. Uh, Stephen Holden of the New York Times, you have the queasy sense that the whole thing is just an elaborate stunt, and in this case, an exploitative one. Uh, Roger Ebert, of course, being a noted purveyor and lover of horned-up cinema, said... Uh, do do where he was it? Uh, he gave it three stars, which I just find staggering. Uh, smart and merciless in the tradition of the original story. First of all, this is why you should never give yourself a four star uh, sliding scale. You got to go with five stars. Come on, Roger. Um, R.I.P. Uh, I don't know, man. I don't think it's smart or merciless. I think it's pretty dumb, and I think it, uh, it its reach exceeds its grasp constantly. Uh, there are things to like about this movie. For instance, starting your film with the placebo song. That's cool. I like that. Swoozy Kurtz is a therapist. I would love Swoozy Kurtz to be my therapist. That sounds cool. Uh, Christine Bransky uh, playing a a racist. Well, you know, I wish better for Christine Bransky, but she can do anything, I guess. Uh, I would like things uh, for Sean Patrick Thomas from Save the Last Dance to do other than uh, kill Ryan Phillippe, sort of. I guess we were supposed to avoid spoilers, but this is a truncated episode because we've got to talk about two movies. So might as well get that bandaid off quick. Uh, I, I guess at the end of the day, the thing that almost saves this movie for me is Selma Blair doing what I would call guerrilla acting on it. I think Selma Blair knows that her character as written in the script is like 14 or 15 years old uh, and being an adult in her mid twenties goes, well, this movie's gross and about these two gross siblings taking advantage of my character. So I'm going to turn this character into a bizarre cartoon and make everybody really uncomfortable when I'm on screen. And I think there's value in that performance. Uh, Bad movie. Do not recommend uh watch the episodes where sarah michelle geller gets to be faith uh same energy uh, a lot of great screen chewing though as arthur said i do agree smg's got the best performance in the movie um but you know she's got the most to do which is mustache twirl uh that's fun i get why she uh seems to have enjoyed this movie enough to do a made for tv uh sequel like what three or four years ago now it's hard to tell with time these days. Dustin, what did you think revisiting this film? Uh, I know we've had this conversation before already, but in the intervening week, uh, where where have you landed? Oh, I still don't like it very much. Uh, it's fine. Uh, there's a lot of it that kind of works. I mean, you've got Reese Witherspoon, got Ryan Felipe is what I always said. So yeah, there's yet, yet a third uh, pronunciation. <laughs> Um, but nonetheless, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, um, which I usually pronounce as Shara. I don't know why, but I always do. Uh, but that's incorrect for the record. <laughs> well, now hold on. Let's circle back. What did you, you said Philippe? Phil, what did you say? Ryan Felipe. Oh, Felipe, which was different than Philippi, which is what I was saying. All right. Well, yeah. Ryan, sorry, Ryan dude. Pilsbury. Um, I, I seem to recall that being the word, but nonetheless, uh, their performances are fine. The dialogue is bad. There is something weirdly soap opery about what they're doing, but I don't think the movie's smart enough to be doing it on purpose in a Twin Peaks-like way. So that doesn't quite work. I think the sets are great. I think the cinematography is great. I think some of the performances are pretty solid. I think some are less so. And I tend to think it's a poor adaptation. Uh, of uh, the source material. And so we put all that together equals kind of not so good movie. And uh, you combine that with systemic racist homophobia and uh, probably uh, a a very reductive discussion of teenage sex. Uh, It makes for a bad time for all. So I'm saying no, niet, niein. We are not doing this. So there is my thoughts uh, regarding this film. I'm done. Moving on. Uh, Now, normally... 
Go ahead. Oh, okay. No, I, well, all right, I'll do it. Normally, we would uh, play a, a mind exercise where we pretended to teach this uh, dumb, dumb film uh, in a smart, smart class. Uh, we're not going to do that uh, as a separate segment. We're just going to roll into, you know, the, the business time, right? We're, we're, doing a, we're doing that right now. That's right. right. And it's time for business. business. It's time for business. And that business is analysis. Uh, so uh, there are many things we analyzed last time. Uh, what would you like to talk about <laughs> of those things? What do you find the most important to reiterate for our dear listeners? Well, I think I've actually thought about the class in this film uh, a little bit more since last time. We didn't really spend a whole, whole lot of time on it uh, yes. last time. And I, I think it's valuable, especially with the film that you know we're going to be talking about in the second half is a much more working class setting. Um, it makes sense that these are rich kids, right? Not only in terms of you know being an adaptation of a, a novel about the French aristocracy, but also like who else is this unsupervised? Although I guess super rich uh, children are also kind of helicoptered probably in their own ways, but you know, this, this is the league of people that get sent to boarding schools. Uh, you know, uh, it, it makes sense from a certain, I don't know, outlining of a screenplay. Like I, I get it. If you're going to take the story and put it in a high school, it probably makes some amount of sense to make them rich, uh, and, and keep that aspect of the original, right? Cause it, if you're making a good movie would theoretically allow you to say something about, um, the, the conditions of the time, right? I unfortunately have a hard time with it just because they're minors, right? Like I don't, it, it's not fun to go look at these rich assholes when the characters are between the ages of, you know, 14 and 18. Uh, because they, they, these kids, uh, look, I, we don't know what's gone on with uh, Catherine Mar- Martell. I don't know how to say her last name, uh, her character last name, I mean, and, and Sebastian Valmont. Uh, but I imagine a, a less than shiny childhood for these two psychos to end up this way, right? Like, not uh, to make excuses for their uh, uh, morally repugnant and fucked up behavior throughout the movie, but, uh, you know, they probably had a had it rough, uh, as rough as rich kids can have it, I mean. Uh, you know what I mean, Dustin? So it, it, it takes the teeth out of any class argument, because we are talking about not fully formed human beings. Right. Well, and that's where the discussion really shifts. And that, that was the point that I, I do recall making last time was that uh, with the original source material as a real send up of the aristocracy, which is an observation that initially Arthur had made, uh, that when we do that and we move it to high school, then it cannot help but be about purity culture, sexual mores and teenage sort of risk taking behavior and that kind of stuff and promiscuity becoming the uh, main text rather than a subtext by which we can diagnose the uh, the fact of the matter is these people have too much bloody money and too much bloody time on their hands. And yeah. That's, yeah. that's the indictment of the aristocracy and the source material. Well, I didn't think I was going to get here this quickly, but since you, you kind of made a point to shout out what the movie ends up doing on accident, we can go ahead and take a, a sidebar over into uh, – Hi, this movie's gross as hell land. Right. Uh, as Dustin said, yeah, we're talking about teenagers, so we can't, number one, especially in the late 90s, we can't help but bring in, you know, the purity culture, was, which was, you know, all the rage at that time and would be for a while. Uh, but we also can't help but deal with the fact that we are sexualizing children in this film. And I, yeah, I get it. Like, everybody's in their 20s, uh, but that's like part of a long and, and not particularly helpful pattern within American pop culture, right, of finger wagging at the promiscuity of minors uh 
in an attempt to, I don't know, say something, usually misread the the point of Lolita, a, a book about a, an evil fucked up dude that for some reason two idiots made movies about how actually he's kind of sexy and cool. Um, I don't know, man. Men are dumb and make dumb movies about dumb things uh, and misunderstand the point of books all the time. Uh, but I, I think you can follow. The reason I bring up Lolita, though, is number one, uh, I, I think you can really there's a through line here, but number two, this through line is really well articulated by uh, Jamie Loftus's recent podcast, the Lita podcast, where we spend a couple of episodes in that, in that mini series talking about uh, film in the nineties, right. Uh, talking about swim fan, talking about, um, Oh God, what was the other, uh, a movie loosely based on somebody's real life. Not important. Uh, the, the point is throughout the late nineties and even into the early two thousands, we have this kind of, cycle of cinema that exists separately from like the 80s college sex comedy which you know has its own bag of problems to unpack and something like uh, revenge of the nerds right uh right. it's whole own basket of bullshit you have to deal with but when we, we we go to high school with this kind of stuff and we cast adults we necessarily from like both a production standpoint and a viewer standpoint start to turn children into adults and that's not to say that children aren't whole human beings they are like i, I think that's kind of the problem is we can't help but like finger wag at children when we start to do this to them in a movie and when in reality we should probably do a lot less finger wagging and a lot more warning them about how creepy adults are uh more often than not uh i think that's kind of the end of my point here if ever there was a point to any of this uh, tangentially connected to what you were just saying about children and being played by adults and, uh, you know, I was thinking about my It's the only way to go sometimes. I, yeah. I do think I want to clarify that, like, especially if you're telling a story about like, like Lolita, uh, you're trying to reckon with uh, child sexual abuse, like, uh, like, uh, what's the play? That's pretty famous. How I Learned to Drive. I think Mary Louise Parker was like, you know, the, the, the also referenced in, in this podcast miniseries I mentioned, but it, kind of as a, it's spotlighted as a time, this sort of thing, this trying to wrestle with this very real, very bad societal issue is, you know, handled with some aplomb is, is when it's done, you know, an adult is playing this person throughout their whole life. Right. And, but, you know, the observation that we were making, uh, again, I'm sort of referring to last time, but I want, yeah. and so I want to reiterate that last time, uh, how in the 10 things I hate about you, another nineties, uh, mm. romantic comedy with teenagers and how Heath Ledger, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Julia Stiles are all age approximate, pretty mm-hmm. close to high school age to the ages of the characters that they are actually playing. Yeah. They're like all 18 to 20. Yeah. And they, again, I think a lot of this has to be given up to screenwriting, but they do a lot of work to give some pretty well-rounded dimensionality to those different characters, as opposed to these adults, I mean, young adults, playing teenagers in Cruel Intentions. And I wonder if, as one grows older and realizes how one was so foolish when one was in high school, one overdoes it and gives too little credit to one's own wisdom and responsibility. And I, and I, so I wonder if that's part of the problem of these early adults playing teenagers also. I mean, you're talking about some of the good things of Mary Louise Parker, and I think that's right. But I think there's also a negative where you sort of get a little perspective, like, man, I was an idiot. And then you play them sure. all like dumb, right? Well, like super, yeah. Yeah, and then you have a writer-director in their early 30s who has even less perspective, who probably seems like a real adult 
grown up to these young adults and is you know i presume and is also their boss for all intents and purposes if if you right. want to try and th- if you want to think about a film production in those that sort of terminology uh mostly jerks do that but you know you can think about it that sort of way uh but yeah i think you're absolutely right dustin that's that's kind of why i was saying like necessarily from just like because of that remove from teendom i think you're right i think the further that distance gets out you start to discredit your own uh you know, look, we, we, wiz, children have wisdom uh, out the wazoo, man. Uh, not about everything, but about plenty of things. They do often see clearer than we do. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a, a point well observed. Yeah, I think it's a problem with sincerity, I think, at that point. Uh, and I think there is an attempt to capture some truth. Because, I mean, I look about sure. myself. I mean, I think about the same exercise any of us could do. I assume that most of our listeners are in their late 20s, early 30s, I don't know. but I, I am trying to appeal to the youth vote, of course. To, to the demographic. And we probably all look uh, upon our uh, early to late teens as very, very stupid times, where we yeah. did very little right. Mm-hmm. And that's not, and I think maybe to an extent we are a little too hard on ourselves. That well, we I were think... at times wiser and more capable of being good than at other times. And at times we were total punk and did terrible things. I think you're absolutely right. I think that there's a, it's good to, there down lies the, the path of like, you know, far too much negative self-talk, right? Like, I, I think you have to give yourself credit for uh, using the skills you have at any any given time in your life. Uh, I, I'm really thinking about old Ryan, whose name we can't uh, come to a consensus upon his performance <laughs> right now. <clears throat> because I think, I, I think his performance does really speak to this problem. He, he seems to understand at some level and this is just my read of the performance, I could be wrong, but I do think he seems to understand at some level that Sebastian just blows, and, and not in the fun way. Uh, not a cool guy. Like, he, he is trying to, like, in his moments where he sounds self-serious, I do think Ryan Phillippe is taking the piss out of that character a little I'm bit. so sick of sleeping with this incipient Manhattan debutants. Me. Yeah, he does say it like a guy who's literally only ever written the word insipid and never said it out loud in that moment. <laughs> uh, like a guy who mostly just writes in his journal and doesn't do a whole lot of talking out loud except to uh, try to convince his stepsister that uh, they should make a, a Pornhub video or whatever the, the kids are doing. Uh, God, this movie is responsible for a lot of people's kinks, huh? Yeah. It's gotta be. It's 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 weird how pervi- anyway. It's neither here nor there. Uh, I, yeah, I think it is that character that character shallowness that hurts so much of this film, right? Like as you said, the, the strength of Ten Things I Hate About You is hey, look, they're they're working from the board or whatever. But it's a good screenplay. It's funny. The jokes are good. They land. The structure is you know again already done for them. But the structure is already done for them here too as well. Again, this is another adaptation we're talking about. And nobody really gets room to breathe. Like Reese Witherspoon has that that funny face moment in the car, and that's the only moment that feels like a, a real person, right? Like that, Annette Hargrove literally feels like a screenplay construct, except in that one scene in the car. And it's just because Reese Witherspoon's got you know uh, more charisma than uh, this movie can handle. Likewise, Sarah Michelle Gellar like gets one scene about her deal, and it really only is because the this you know the movie needs to give her as a villain like something resembling a motivation. And that scene works. Like, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar sells it. And I think sells that aspect of the character, right? This character who, like, loves to fuck with people because the only person who knows she's uh, this evil Machiavellian figure is her stepbrother. Everybody else thinks she is, you know, this prim and proper person. Um, It it is just so... It doesn't ever work. Like, it, it comes really close with her character to, like, saying something about the way we try to present ourselves for... uh 
other people's approval, right? Like that, that is supposed to be this character's whole defining conflict. And I, I don't know. I don't know that it ever lands truly. And maybe it's just because Catherine doesn't, as a character, doesn't get enough screen time, or she's just underdeveloped by by the uh, the story itself. But you know, that good performance, as good as it is, is not able to really carry that because we don't get to see her through anybody else's eyes besides Sebastian, right? Which is a big problem. Uh, again, the movie being through Sebastian's eyes primarily does like limit its focus in ways that kind of keep it anybody from having much depth. Because right, and our only two possible surrogates are way underwritten in the characters of Selma Blair and Reese Witherspoon, and so yeah, yeah. And that was a point when we first talked about this. I thought you 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 made that point quite well that like those are our only options, right? As like regular dipshits at a multiplex in 1999, we are obviously probably not going to be. Excuse me, uh, relating to Catherine or Sebastian very much. Uh, so we, we do kind of rely on these two characters, even though they're both also extremely wealthy. We, we are kind of relying on them, at least from a, I don't know about morality, if that's the word I want to use, but let's go ahead and go with morality. We're relying on them from more point of view to like give us some grounding. And as you said, they're they're very underwritten and frankly abused by the movie more often than not. For sure, for sure. And but really think- everybody is. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's probably enough to be said there at this point about this film, because we have a whole other movie to cram into this podcast today. So uh, let's render a verdict, shall we? Uh, what do we say with uh, Cruel Intentions? Shall we put it on the shelf or put it in the trash? What do you say, Arthur? I think I foreshadowed this pretty heavily, but uh, I mm-hmm. think it's trash. Right on, right on. What do you say, Dalton? Yes, these fictional characters uh, should have their fortunes liquidated, uh, and probably so should uh, writer, director, um roger crumble or cumble god is that really his name that's unfortunate mm. uh yikes no wonder he wrote and directed cruel intentions i, I probably would have too with that last name yeah bad movie gross movie uh, i think really ethically dicey if, if anything else if nothing else very good very good i say trash as well not only is it everything that we said so far it's also homophobic and racist so it's got problems and i'm not a fan so there God, you go the nine, it's weird i'm so excited to cut loose fellas because it's weird that a movie from like 15 years before this is less homophobic yeah and and that move uh well i guess about the same amount of of uh slurs uh in footloose but God, is it weird uh, how homophobic the mid to late 90s were, right? Like, yeah, man, maybe it's because we've watched a lot of 90s movies the last couple of years, but oh boy. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather around a table and we keep talking. Uh, That's right. Another movie in one podcast. Much like your your experience of quarantine, probably, uh, everything just keeps going and going (laughs) in an endless Ouroboros of pain. And and also, sometimes you hear children. I want to go back. I want to go back real quick to Mr. Uh, our fugitive's name is Dr. Roger Cumble. Um, <laughs> let's just look at this guy's filmography. Uh, His filmography is nuts. He, he did. Uh, he did Just Friends uh, with uh, uh, Mr. Reynolds, and uh, is that Amy Smart? It is Amy Smart. He also did The Sweetest Thing, also with Selma Blair uh, and Cameron which you, Diaz, uh, which you referenced as an else last week. I did. I, of... Yeah, I kind of like it. If I if I remit, look, it's been a long time since I watched it. There is a pretty bananas. Oh, Christina Applegate, that's the third lead. Yeah, uh, there's a pretty bananas oral sex gag in that movie that yeah, like there is. I I truly cannot imagine being in a with movie. Selma Blair again. I'm pretty sure with Selma Blair again. I cannot imagine that being in a movie after 9/11. You know what I mean? Like America couldn't handle uh, a, a very 
bizarre Selma Blair related oral sex gag after uh, after we went to war forever. <laughs> he also did last year's After We Collided. God, that's right. The super R-rated sequel to uh, After, which was like PG-13. <laughs> yeah, I apparently. Uh, yeah, apparently. I, I just learned about this recently. After was like did a big fart at the box office here, but the rest of the world was huge. Yeah. So they made a real sexed up sequel. I had a friend who uh, he reviewed it on Letterboxd. He said the kitty version of any Fifty Shades movie. Ooh, I don't like that. Mm-mm. Somebody else said, does Sufjan Stevens know his song is in this quickly? <laughs> okay, I want something good. I want let's something cut. wholesome. I'm I just ready want to, to cut dance. loose, man. Yeah, let's cut loose from all this dreck and uh, let's talk about Footloose. Same Dustin. format as before. You've been listening already, dear listener, so you know what's about to happen. Arthur, do you have a synopsis for us? Uh, if you'll take a break from dancing in your warehouse, uh, I will tell you. Okay, I, I'm done for now. Uh, when Ren and his mother move from Chicago to small town Beaumont, he knows they're in for a culture change. He adjusts easily enough to the country culture in the small town, but what he can't adjust to is the town's heavy-handed censorship agenda mm. to uphold the spiritual morality of the populace, including the city's ban on dancing. Let's hear it for the boy. That was a great synopsis. Yeah, great uh, synopsis. Well Kevin played. Bacon's got a song in his heart, and he's got to dance, damn it. Look, is there a better song than Footloose? For like a, a better movie song? Uh, yeah. No, I, I I don't think it's even close, man. Like, I guess, well, uh, I Will Always Love You, that was for the bodyguard, right? No, Correct. Dolly Parton wrote that years ago. Oh, that's, right, that's yeah. right. That's Dolly Parton song, yeah. Uh, um, wow. Uh, I mean, it's it's this or Ghostbusters, right? Yeah, it's it's got to be. I don't. I can't think. I mean, maybe my heart will go on, but that's like. No, man, that's know, that's way further. Shit. Okay, I did. Fi- I forget about Kiss by. No, I think Kiss by Rose was a a Seal song that they readapted for. Oh, Batman. really? I, I think that I was actually that. on a record like the year prior, if I remember, if I'm remembering correctly. Now I like Shallow from A Star Is Born, and I think Skyfall mm-hmm. from Skyfall are both good, but Footloose, man. But yeah, I, that's I, just, the, both of those songs. Yeah, both of those songs are just coasting on the power of their vocalists, right? Like. Yeah, shallows. The lyrics are complete and utter nonsense. Um, other than just kind of like a a uh, arousing, and I like that. Like, I went and saw that movie uh, with my then soon to be misses uh, after we took engagement photos. Cute film. It's fine. Whatever. Well, not cute. There's a lot I don't like. Yeah, I don't think that's the word. Uh, yeah, and Skyfall. Look, love the opening of the, the, maybe one of my favorite James Bond opening credits. But yeah, Adele is all you need to make your song work. Kenny Loggins, not you know noted for his his you know bravura voice. Now, what about Danger Zone for Top Gun? I mean, Kenny Loggins, really, man. What what a, what a king. He had a 80s, run, didn't he? Yeah, pop yeah. music, fucking just putting down the the tracks. Uh, Arthur. What's your experience with this film? Uh, had you seen it? With Footloose? Yeah. I had seen Footloose before. I wanted to look at something because it's been like three weeks since I watched this movie. <laughs> um, I'd seen Footloose, oh, a few years ago, and I really enjoyed it. I think I watched it maybe after the first time I tried to watch Dirty Dancing years ago. Mm-hmm. And initially, I liked Footloose quite a bit. Now, if you ask me, I'm going to lean towards Dirty Dancing. I think overall, it's sure. a stronger film. Um, Footloose, though, I think is just, I think it's... I want to say it's just more than fine. I think Footloose is a very enjoyable film that wears its heart on its sleeve. Um, I I do think it spins its will a bit. Uh, uh, It's like there's not enough meat on the bone for the premise that they have. Like 
they've outlawed dancing in this town and we're going to fight back. Like, I, I don't think there's enough. I don't think they do enough with that premise. I don't feel like there's a lot of character in this movie. I, I think there's a lot of, of mining you could do with, with Kevin Bacon's character with, uh, Oh, I can't think of her name. The, the girl Ariel. Yeah. Ariel. And, and even with the, uh, John Lithgow, I think all of them, we kind of get shades of, of the, the deeper, right. But they're all pretty shallow in their motivation. Yeah. I think Laurie um, Singer's Ariel is strangely like the most well-drawn of the three. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I, I think they give her a little more meat, uh, but we really don't know a lot about why Kevin Bacon's. So, you know, he does have a moment where mom asks why he's so adamant, but it never feels as, as deep or sincere. And the same thing with the uh, Lithgow, like, they kind of give that cop out. Oh, he was hurt before. This is why he doesn't want them partying, which I mean, I guess as a parent would be reasonable, but it, it feels like the, the severity of what's going on. I mean, they holding a book burning at the local school, uh, you know, it, like there's stuff like that yeah. that just kind of feels like we, we could have gone further here instead. We didn't do this thing, but you know, the stuff like the, the Chris Penn dance montage, oh, so all good. of the dance stuff when they go to the bar across state lines. So good. The prom at the end, the Ugh. chicken fight, all that stuff is great. I, I think that's fun. I think this movie has a lot of fun moments in it. The warehouse. I, yeah, yeah. I, I just feel like for what, it's an hour and 50 minutes, I think. And I just feel like it doesn't quite get where it needs to be. I, mm. I think we could have done it with a little more character or or just trim some of the, uh, the other one is, uh, uh, oh, the mom, uh, John Lithgow's wife. I cannot think of anybody's name tonight. Oh, Diane Weiss. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she has this like weird turn at the end where she's all of a sudden very involved and adamant in this discussion, even though she's kind of been in the background for the rest of the movie. We, you know, she didn't really do anything until the third act. And I kind of like that to some extent, right? I like the idea of her being this, this kind of conflicted uh, reverend's wife who's trying to just kind of lay back in the cut. Uh, yeah until she can no longer but you're absolutely right we could have gotten some more scenes with her to, to yeah i mean it feels kind of it feels like she just kind of comes in at the last minute because they needed her character to come in at the last minute so they could move things along yeah they didn't bother to give her anything else to do prior yeah. so it's that kind of stuff that that kind of I, I feel like it's a really back and forth movie but i have a lot of fun with it i enjoy watching it i'll watch it again um, you know, I, I think uh, Dirty Dancing is the more complicated, complex film that I'm looking for. That's kind of really getting into some serious social issues, has a lot more depth to it, has some great. Oh, Time of Your Life. Right. I mean, that's <sighs> yeah, that might be it's that or Footloose. I think I we've know. built the top five in, in deciding what top Footloose is, though. Like, right. Like, I think every song yeah. we've mentioned is probably in, in the top ten. And again, this is only a fairly recent convention. Well, OK, I guess if you go we'll back have to come back to it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back when we talk. About I think of uh, uh, Raindrops Are Falling on My Head from Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. All oh, I mean, yeah. all what, 30 of the James Bond themes. Live and Let Die is a good song. So. I don't know. Anyway, I like Footloose. I enjoy it. I don't think it's the greatest thing, but I, I think it's a lot of fun uh, and very earnest film. That's uh, a good time to watch. So thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, well, I, you've kind of been doing the review alongside him, Dalton. Um, I'm, I'm so amped, Dustin. I can't, I can't right. contain it. Do we hear you say, yes, you like it? Yes, I do like it. Okay, films. and that's all the time we've got. Thanks for that, Dalton. Um, no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, 
No, I mean, really, that there is not a whole lot else to say. I like it a lot. Uh, it's been a long time since I had seen this film. Uh, I was in a production of Footloose as a, as a small boy. Um, I was. I was a teen. Uh, they made me be the, uh, the mean coach. There's a mean coach in the, I, th- I guess he shows up in the movie too, but he's got more to do in the musical. Not a whole lot more. I couldn't sing very well. Probably still can't. Man, I wanted a part that I got to dance more. Uh, and I got to be the feet, uh, on the off nights, which was fun. Uh, yeah, I, this movie's got maybe my favorite opening credits of all time. It just goes, dude, like, and it's, I, I love that it's both cast and crew, uh, in that opening, like, just foot close-up dance sequence. It's just tight, man. There's some wacky, like, bendy, uh, gals and heels dance moves going on. Uh, well, not necessarily gals. I don't know who, who put on heels for this dancing. Anyway, it, it just goes, man. From minute one, you're like, I'm pumped. I want to see this movie. Uh, I Kevin Bacon really does just cement himself as a movie star right away. Like good for him. I guess his agent, uh, he had a sure bet. He was, he was casting Christine. Like he had the role. Uh, and either his manager or his agent or somebody was like, go for Footloose though. <laughs> go out for it. You might not get it, but if you do, you're going to be a star. Uh, or so the legend goes. And, uh, yeah, it worked out. Uh, this movie as Arthur's, I don't really disagree with anything Arthur said. I think he's absolutely right. I think, you know, Dirty Dancing is a kind of similar film. It's much stronger. Uh, this movie is a little on the long side. Uh, but damn it, when it does go, it goes. Uh, every dance sequence is, is really incredible. And it is kind of the, the weakness of the film's plot that uh, it can't have too many dance numbers because it's a film about dancing being illegal. <laughs> so it is a, a dance film that is uh, forced uh, into having a limited number of dance sequences. But I, I think they're all great. Um, even, even the, I just like, I am so drawn in by the stupidly earnest, angry warehouse dance, the, which is just the, the most eighties thing <laughs> in the world. Like, and I know I normally don't go for literally anything about the eighties aesthetics, but there is something about this sort of still stuck in the late seventies, uh, rule, uh, eighties that works for me. Um, I go for it. Uh, I, I do like that Ariel gets a lot to do. She gets to be complicated. I don't like that the movie beats the shit out of her. I think that was kind of a weird choice, but I also think it's handled much more empathetically and delicately than any of the gross stuff that happens in something like Cruel Intentions, right? Like there is objectionable stuff in this film, but it all works. There are adults playing teens in this film and they're all very horny, but all that stuff happens off screen. We, of course they are, uh, everybody's, you know, getting high and having sex, but like we don't revel in it. We, we, we're not reveling in their youth or their their teenness or their horniness. We are letting those be assets and factors of their personalities that are allowed to just kind of exist uh, and still foreground characters, right? Like uh, we 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 have this. Scene, I'm thinking about really the scene with Ariel and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and uh, their other friend uh, as like the moment rewatching this that I was like, Oh damn, I forgot there was like stuff going on in this because the, the choice to have like maybe our second or third scene with uh, the protagonist's romantic lead, like be all about her death wish. That's like a big choice. Yeah. <laughs> that is a choice for a movie to make. And uh, I'm, I'm on board with it. Like I, I think from go, we get a lot with Lori as, you know, look, it's easy to go. Oh, the Reverend's daughter is so complicated, huh? But I, I, I think the film does does something with that. Like it is trying to interrogate who this person is again more than really it does for Rin or you know Willard and uh, Rusty are just happy to be at the party. Uh, and you know, Rin's got a song in his heart. But yeah, I, I, it's really 
especially I was going to say films of this era, but really any studio film uh, with a male lead, uh, that, that that female love interest is not always given a real role. And uh, I think Laurie Singer is, is great as Ariel. I think it's a real performance. I think it's a real character. Uh, now, am I saying it's like the most robust performance or the most robust character? No, I you know, but I think for what the film is, I, I think it gives, it has more interest in her interior life than it, uh, you know, is required to. And I, I think that... Uh, there's a lot of value in that. I, th- I think there's a value in a film uh, getting trauma, right? Like th- if, and that, you know, again, ta- thinking about cruel intentions kind of in contrast with this, it's a film that just like is completely incapable of reckoning with anything that happens in its runtime. And I, I think this film is all about reckoning with things that happen to you in, in, in ways that are really effective. And sometimes the only way you can reckon with those things is to cut loose, baby. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, I'm going to say that I like it. Uh, it is a fun movie. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's got, as if cinema is an emotion manipulation machine, you are energized when you leave that experience, and it succeeds in doing that. And it is also uh, more than marginally less exploitative than Cruel Intentions, although there are moments of exploitation. I still think that, uh, that uh, abuse attack scene is a bit exploitative uh, yeah. there. Uh, but that being said, for the rest of it, it's it's all fun. It all works. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy what's going on with it. Uh, it is a way in which you minimize tradition, traditionalism, uh, conservatives and conservatism and conversations. It does some things that are interesting in the way that it minimizes and oversimplifies and then ways in which it gives nuance uh, that are surprising. Uh, so it, it, you know, it, it, it's got its flaws. It's got its, it's got its high points, but it works. And uh, for the purpose for which it is being produced, which is to make you have fun in the cinema. And it does all of that. So generally speaking, um, Kevin Bacon's a star. Mary Louise Parker is a star. I'm, I'm there. So yeah, happy times. Mary Louise Parker is not in this film, Dustin. I'm so well, sorry. Who, who'd I say? You said Mary Louise Parker. Well, uh, who's not in this film? Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker. I thought, that's who, I, I thought that's who you met. Yeah. Anyway, words, hard, lots of names. Um, <laughs> quit messing with me. I'm too old for this. Uh, anyway, so there you go, Delister. Those were our thoughts. And now, rather than having a uh, mental exercise, we're going to get down to business. Again. <laughs> Once again, you hear that kicking music twice. Uh, we are wearing the appropriate socks uh, and leg yes. warmers. Our refractory period has passed. We can once we get, once more get down to business. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, let us discuss the assault scene, shall we? Oh, do we have to start there? Yeah, I no, guess we well, probably should. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know where you want to start, but I mean that's no, the most problematic thing about this whole movie is this guy beats a stew out of this girl, and there is no correction of that other than the myth of redemptive violence gets to play itself out at the prom scene where Kevin Bacon gets to thrash the dude. He does get to do a cool flying kick, but you're absolutely right. It does just say, well, you know, if you beat somebody up, then you should be beaten up, and then everybody can go about their business. Uh, and yeah, for for a film that does, as I just was kind of high-fiving it for, that does seem to reckon with trauma, uh, at least, you know, uh, look, you wouldn't have to reckon with trauma much uh, very well at all to do it better than Cruel Intentions. But uh, I think Footloose more than, like, passes that very low bar. But yeah, that scene is no good. Uh, it's gross. It is really intense. Like it is one of the most visceral moments of the film by a long shot. Like it, it is shot in a way that is distressing, which I, you know, I is the point clearly, but uh, yeah, I don't, we don't need it. 
Like we've already established that that dude sucks and that Ariel can't stop putting herself in mortal danger. I don't yeah. really think we need to like make that guy suck at the expense of, you know, uh, making our audience watch that. I right. think what's interesting, uh, to Dustin's point, even the you know the redemptive violence moment, the, the big fight outside the prom, doesn't even feel it, it's not even a reaction to that moment, right? It's no. it's just them showing up to be, you know, punks again, and, and Kevin Bacon and them just you know getting to one of them, and it's weird that there is, I mean, I, I, it's weird that there's not a direct reactionary moment of violence where someone gets you know, revenge on him. And then that escalates to the prom fight. It's, it's odd that they let that abuse go essentially unanswered. And I don't know if that's just the film punishing her for being the free spirit that she is or. And that's how it reads, right? Like I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's not. There's no other. Yeah. There's no other explanation for it in my mind. looking at this, the text of the film, because you know, Narratively, I think that the sh- the the reaction of Lithgow slapping her in that moment makes sense where the characters are, but for that moment at the end where he just shows up, beats her, you know, and maybe trying to show her metal that she's not scared of him and that she is willing to stand. She but even that feels like a stretch. That's true, and that's the only thing I think is it, it's speaking to like her her strength as a character, not only you know emotionally or mentally, but physically. But even that kind of feels like a stretch in, in some ways for me. Yeah, and it's it's a pretty weak cop-out, right? Like, we've yeah. got a pretty long and lengthy history of Hollywood cinema saying, oh, how do we show that this woman's strong? I don't know, subject her to a man's violence. That's something, right? And, yeah, beat her. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, assault her in some capacity. Uh, and that's not, man, that's some, that's some dudes writing a screenplay-ass stuff right there. Uh, yeah, we don't need it. I, I agree. I think the, uh, you know, the Lithgow, you know, her, her dad striking her like that, that feels true in that moment. And like, I think the film actually reckons with that moment in some ways. But yeah, we, we don't need that business. Uh, I do like that. Uh, Chuck, is that her boy, shitty boyfriend's name? Is that his name? That sounds I don't good. remember. Uh, yeah, I like that when he throws out the gay slur that, uh, the big beefy friend to Willard and Wren that's like only in two scenes shows up. It I, goes I to work. Yeah. Wes is his name, I think. I think so, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I- I've chosen to decide that that character's canonically gay because we don't really learn anything about him, uh, and he's, he's a big old beefcake. Yeah, I love that he shows up and just, like, schools four dudes for using the slur. It's a very tight scene, uh, and way better than any of the gross stuff that they uh, uh, do in Cruel Intentions. I-, I guess now, though, that we've talked about the misogyny and homophobia in rural America in this film, we should address that... Uh, uh, this movie is about a, our part of the country. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this. You know, this is based on uh, Elmore City, right? Yeah. No, I didn't know. I figured one of you had to know. Yeah, Dustin, uh, Elmore City, South of Norman. Uh, listener, you know that team that they're always talking about from our state that plays the footballs? Uh, there's a city yeah. south of where they play a little bit. And they had a no dancing thing until like the mid 70s, late 70s. And same Same deal. I don't think Kevin Bacon showed up and, you know, taught them about how they dance in Chicago or anything. But yeah, the kids wanted to have a prom and they got to have a prom. It was pretty undramatic, uh, apparently, uh, according to the people that were there anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, Dustin kind of has already remarked upon this listener, but I think we should probably deal with the ways in which it minimizes uh, folks from rural areas. Not that, you know, there isn't plenty of bad stuff to say about them, but hey, guess what? There's plenty you can say about city folk we just talked about a movie about that uh see the earlier part of this episode 
Dustin, you seemed like you had thoughts about this more than I do. Why don't you go ahead and take it from there? Uh, I do. I have several thoughts on this and then sort of a third uh, tangential issue. But uh, the first thing, I guess, to to answer your question is that in this story, we have John Lithgow's character who is responding to trauma, who is responding, I think, in a way a city, that is... A, a city reverend, originally, it's important to note. Yeah, I think. Uh, he's taken a wrong step in the right direction or a right step in the wrong direction, however you want to say it. There was a there was a dance. Kid got drunk, got killed. We can stop this by not having that. Or we okay. could not let our teens drink and drive, but, you know, that's well, just I mean, me. It's a way to prevent that, right? Sure. And so, I mean... Like I said, I get that, but he's also nuanced because there's a lot of book-burning rednecks in this town who don't want anything that challenges traditional belief. They got behind the no-dancing rule because it is the vertical expression of a horizontal urge, and uh, John Lithgow has different reasons for wanting to do this, and they want to get all that smutty smut 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 out of the minds of their kids and protect them entirely isolating them. And so uh, he's all the time sort of fighting him back and forth for book burning because, again, small-town folk don't like to read things like books anyway. And not only that, uh, if they've got too many hard words or things that make us feel funny, we got to make sure they make a good barbecue. That's a problem. And that is the sort of the representation that the, the movie has. Again, the weirdly has nuance because we do have that in John Lithgow's character, but also becomes very two-dimensional and stereotyped and sad, kind of tragic uh, as well. So, yeah, it's weird. It's it's weird the ways in which American popular culture writes a, an anti-intellectual impulse that is, I think, pervasive throughout this nation's culture uh, and chooses to just like write that onto certain parts of the country. Uh, I've been saying this a lot lately, and I'll go ahead and say it again. I want to remind everybody that all the fucking real Nazis are on the West Coast. Don't get me wrong, we got, you know, plenty of plenty of hoods, uh, people in white hoods, I should say, uh, around these parts. But, you know, and well, we got a, our fair share of uh, Nazi punks, too, honestly. But, damn it, <laughs> the West Coast is lousy with Nazis, and they don't get to pretend they're not. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and it, it is, it's just weird that, that's not weird, it makes sense. It's easy to categorize people and put them in boxes. But it, it's just frustrating that uh, it, it becomes such a, a trope throughout our our nation's uh, cinema that it just starts to become the reality. When again, I, I think that anti anti intellectual strain is just kind of endemic to you know larger issues of our uh, national identity. And I think that ties a little bit to the way Kevin Bacon quote unquote wins the argument with his uh, challenge to the city council. He yeah, goes uh, scripture for the dancing rule, right? Um, the assumption that seems that the film was making is that those people had no idea that stuff was in the Bible, which you know, is I, I don't, I don't get, I don't know that I got that. I feel like I got they had chosen to neglect that that part's in the Bible, a thing that people who read the Bible a lot do constantly. Sure, and and that certainly is a thing that happens. But you know, it seems to me that a, a more nuanced discussion would have been: No, we realize that the Bible doesn't speak to every 20th and 21st century issue, and we've made these rules around the rules for safety and other sort of, you know, preservation of souls kind of reasons, and that's why we're doing it. We recognize that there's other kinds of dancing and other... Again, it doesn't give any nuance to why a person in time and space might say, you know, uh, here, here's an example just randomly of just uh, rules that uh, Christians have made. Over time, not not like the stupid easy ones, right? We no dancing, no playing cards, right? No movie going. None. Here's an example: 
some holiness groups in the 1940s and 50s in the United States made it a rule amongst their communities that you could not own two cars. The reason being was that it was conspicuous consumption. It was a waste of money. And uh, you could do more with your with your worldly wealth to help others by not choosing to keep up with the Joneses and put two cars in your garage. That was a rule in these certain little holiness groups, small, small, like Pilgrim Holiness and a couple others uh, in this part of uh, the early 20th century. Now, as time went on, they said, oh, well, you know what? It's impossible to make a living without a two-income family. Of course, you got to have two cars. Remember, relax the rule. And so they apply a rule knowing that it's not in the Bible, but it is a good way to express what they want to express or protect from that which they want to protect. And everybody knew it. And it's weird how in the in Christianity there's two problems. There is an extent to which people do know that and then they're willing to give it up and people are like, wait, what? You can't do that. Or people who don't realize that some of the rules are just made up and they lose their minds when they're challenged. That's right. You heard it here first, kids. Uh, just like uh, whose line is it anyway? In religion, everything's made up and the points don't matter. Uh, That's what you said, right? That's uh, what I heard. Not not quite, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I, I... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and, and then when a, when a young person finds us in the Bible or whatever, and they say, well, that's not why we don't do this, right? Instead of coming back with reason, explanations, or whatever, you know, I mean, you know, I grew up in a teetotaler version of Christianity as well. You are never to drink alcohol. And then later I went on to find out that Jesus' first miracle was bartending, right? And once you realize, that's the uh, turning water into wine for those of you uninitiated at home. Um, when I discovered lucky that- souls. Uh, I was very, very frustrated. I was like, wait a minute. I thought you said the liquor drinking was all the time bad. It turns out the liquor drinking was being recommended against and being per- forbidden by the group because there's problems that you're trying to avoid there. But they never voiced it like that, and that's what caused the teenage rebellion. Sure. And, and, and so, again, it's sort of like the way in which religious people are aware of some of this. Some, not all of them are, but a lot of them are. Well, and and I think a real nuanced conversation about what practice is, right? I want to bring this back to the where where the film is nuanced, though. And you've already kind of kind of referenced this a little bit, but the, at the book burning, uh, what is it that uh, Lithgow says? Uh, Satan isn't in these books; he's in your hearts, right? Uh, and I think that is the moment at which, and you're right, there are folk who are like this. There are folk who, uh, you know, I don't think self-examine or religiously examine too closely and the reverend or whatever their faith leader tells them some shit and they go, all right, works for me. Uh, I'll go ahead and carry that on. So I, I think that the film is speaking to a real condition of uh, people taking uh, the, I was going to say dictates. That's not the right word. That's not the word I want to use. Uh, people taking the leaders of their communities word at face value, right. And applying that to their lives and not really thinking too critically about it. Uh, and, and it's fortunate that the film in this character, Reverend Shaw has a guy that chooses to go ahead and say, Oh God, what have I wrought? Not, not dancing led to led to us being Nazis. That's not good. You never want to be on the team of with people that are. Uh, you want, never want to be on the same team as the people burning books. It's right. not a good move uh, historically. Um, just don't do it. It's bad. Don't burn the books. Why would you do that? No book burn. Yeah, bad idea. Bad idea. But again, that's just but, one of those you, ways that, in which you play off these rednecks who just don't. They don't even read their own book, kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I, but again, I, I I don't know. I I think there is nuance there, and I, I think you're right. I think we could probably use at least like one more adult character. Well, you know, and I guess I we do have is uh, Rin's boss, uh, whose right. name I forget. The guy he works for at the factory or 
wh- whatever they do there other than angry dance. It looks uh, like a feed store of some sort. Is it a feed store? That would make sense. Yeah, because uh, yeah, there seems like there's a bunch of grain silos around there. Um, he, but he is like decidedly against the town's uh, preoccupation with the teen social life, like from jump. That's his whole deal. That's all we, I think Woody is maybe his name. That's all we learn about him is that he thinks that this is dumb and he thinks the kids should be able to dance. <laughs> and when they finally get to, he goes, good job, Reverend. <laughs> like, I don't hate you anymore. <laughs> like it's, I, I think we have that character, I guess. He's the it, conscience of the town. Yeah. Right? Well, it him and uh, Mrs. Reverend Moore, uh, Diane yeah. Weist. Like we do have characters within the, yeah, we, and we've got Kevin Bacon's uncle uh, who is, kind of a a dipshit and we don't really learn any nuance about like his views or anything um i don't know i I, i'm kind of i'm really just advocating for the film not that i disagree with you uh or your assessment dustin because i i do think that there is we've talked plenty about uh i think we we had a really good time talking about it on our uh uh, two wong fu episode but yeah we've we've gotten into the ways hollywood tries to uh paint the middle of the country with a extremely broad brush uh right. w- with little to no nuance uh but you know i i think although lithgow comes around i mean there we have to sort of acknowledge that point he does exactly. come around he, but satan is in your hearts he, he yeah. i presumably again like that that is kind of the problem that you, you've been trying to get at is the town is lithgow and lithgow is the town and that's just really all the movie has time for yeah because we got a, we need another kevin bacon dancing sequence obviously right Duh. we need another kenny loggins song always <laughs> always more loggins um i'm looking over my notes oh this is a dumb one uh i remember when buying American was a thing that people cared about? Uh, well, people do. I, my grandfather still yells at me for driving a German car. Uh, <laughs> but speaking of, uh, it's just a weird like quirk of the times that like Kevin Bacon rolls up in that beetle and everybody gives him the side eye and the film doesn't feel the need to explain that at all. Right. Like, I don't know that a younger V I I'm very curious if we, uh, Dustin, you've already kind of, uh, pay lip service to polling our uh, the demographics of our fans. If we do have any uh, young and hip teens in the audience, I would be curious if uh, they watched Footloose and, and saw that scene and thought, what, why is everybody being weird? Is it because he's listening to Bang Your Head? Yes, but also it's because he's the only person there driving. Like, there's that very conspicuous shot of him pulling up to a Chevy with all the labels popped off. Obviously, I guess Chevy didn't want anything to do with the movie. Uh, but, like, the, attention is drawn to the fact he's driving an import. And that's just, like... I don't know. I've been in rural America, not recently, because I haven't been anywhere recently, but within the last three years, two years, uh, they've got imports in, you know, places with less than 20,000 people. Like, not everybody's driving American, because even people in the middle of nowhere know that literally nothing is made here anymore. Uh, And even if it was, it was probably uh, mostly assembled in uh, Canada or Mexico first. Right, and strong odds that your Japanese vehicle was made here in Canada, in Kentucky. So exactly, yeah. Go well, my, again, my German car made in Mexico. Yeah, yeah, like uh, globalism, right? Like people understand this. This is not uh, a foreign concept to people, but it is, man, such a sign of the times in that, that one scene that, like, that is the othering of Kevin Bacon is driving a Volkswagen. <laughs> it's so, very funny to me. I want to come to the last thing here because I do think this is important because okay. I wanted to set up with this conversation about nuance and understanding these sort of differences and traditional beliefs and, you know, the sort of emotional reactions. Uh, here is the thing, though, I think that is uh, the way in which this movie diagnoses conservatism. 
Mm, okay. And the way in which Kevin Bacon's ploy does not initially work uh, at the city council is that there is a true understanding that you cannot give facts to decisions people have made on emotion to change those decisions. Yes. Period. Yeah, that's and a real thing. I'll back you up on that. That People done the social sciences and shit on that. That's real. Yeah. And so that's a great example of it, is that, yeah, it, for all intents and purposes, rhetorically, he wins the argument and it doesn't change anything. There are no minds changed. And there's a difference between uh, getting uh, someone to turn a corner and it is uh, between that and, again, rhetorically being convincing, especially in uh, these kinds of venues uh, like we're seeing here in this film. So I just thought that was worth noting as well. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a valuable point. Uh, do we uh, we've talked about this difference on the, the show before, and I just I, I think this may be a, I just want to end us somewhere fun. It's silly. Um the distinction between dance movie and musical is musical film is, is sort of weird and tenuous and something we, we did a long time ago on our, our musical marathon. Uh, we talked about uh, John Waters hairspray, uh, a dance film, not a musical originally. Uh, and just kind of the distinction between those two. Do we have any, any anybody thinking about anything big on those? I, it's just a distinction I think is interesting. Like they function similarly and yet are definitely different things. Um, correct. <laughs> so like- no. Let's, yeah, we, we probably said more interesting things about that a long time ago. Listener, you can go find that. Um, yeah, uh, Dustin, I, I, I like I like that you brought some good points here to the, the, the nuance and sometimes lack thereof in this film. Uh, I think it's valuable. If you... Uh, I feel like I want to ask you something, but I don't know what the question is yet. Uh, if either of you feels like vamping, that would be cool. Otherwise, I'll uh, pull this half-formed thought out of my brain. Uh, go ahead and uh, pull the half-form thought right on out, because I think next agenda is to render a verdict here. Oh, yeah. It feels like this train's coming into the station. Uh, I, I guess because you are kind of troubled by the, the films, and, and this feels like a real—I'm going to throw Aaron Sorkin under the bus. This feels like an Aaron Sorkin thing, right? Like, if you say the right words in the right order, you can change people's uh, right. stubborn people's minds, right? Which— is not how talking to other people works. Trust me, I've tried uh, a lot. Uh, it definitely feels like some screenwriter stuff, though. Um, do you think there is a more emotionally authentic version of a, a similar, not that I, you know, I, I think it's bad film uh, analysis or bad film review to say what a movie should do sometimes, but I, I think in this circumstance, I want to play around a little bit. Is there a version of, not necessarily this story, but any story. Is there is there a version of telling a story about trying to change the minds of people set in their ways or traditionalism ran amok, let's say? Uh, is there some version of, of that sort of story that you think can play more with how people's minds actually change and doesn't just become like who, who gets to have a cool teary-eyed monologue in the third quarter of the or third quarter, third act of the movie? Right. Oh, golly. What is, I love my dead gay son, uh, is what I was just thinking of, as you said. Oh, and Heathers. Yeah. Yeah. And Heathers. Yeah. I mean, that kind of arc. Yeah. Sure. Is the way in which somebody gets over, say, a homophobia in that case. And, um, so I, I think that's, I think you have to watch a character sort of journey through it instead of having them built as a villain. I think that's really the only way to emotionally get there. Well, and I guess I would, oh, go ahead. I have Sorry. your protagonist be wrong and become right. 
Mm, that's interesting. I don't think we get that with Rin, but I do think we get with Lithgow maybe something resembling that in in his own horror at striking his daughter, in his horror at his congregation burning books. Yeah, and I think we do have some nuggets of that. But you, yeah, you're right. I, I think if if the film wanted to be about that, there'd be more of that. And it definitely is more concerned with cutting loose, baby. Mm-hmm. Do you guys want to cut loose? I do want to cut loose uh, and render a verdict. So what do we say? Shelf or trash with uh, Footloose? What do you say, Dalton? The entire time I was watching Cruel Intentions, I was holding out for a hero. Yes, I was going to get the third song in there. Uh, the hero was Footloose. <laughs> this movie fucking goes. Uh, I haven't seen the remake. I don't really care to. I'm sure it's probably got some pretty good uh, sequences because um, oh, I can't think of the name of the director, but he's, he's good. Uh, he's, he's got a good body work. Um, and there's good dancers in it. So I'm sure it's fine. But man, this movie goes. I like it. It's fun. It's it's kitschy and catchy, which is really all you can ask for in a piece of almost 40-year-old media. Uh, yeah, it's it's shelfable. I, I think it's a good time. Oh, Craig Brewer, by the way, is who did the remake. Um, interesting filmmaker, that Craig. Uh, good movie. I would watch again. I would recommend people watch it. Don't watch Cruel Intentions. Watch uh, Footloose, a film uh, about how teens want to have sex, but in, in a much less gross way. Very cool, very cool. Uh, what do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash for Footloose? Um, I will... I will lightly put it on the shelf, I think. I I do think it's it's a good time to be had in a very earnest film. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd, I'd put it on the shelf. Alrighty, alrighty. Well, guys, I'm going to have to break up the uh, thing. I'm going to go ahead and say trash, but very gently, because I just don't think it belongs in the conversation. It's fine. It's fun. It's uh, I wouldn't say change a channel if it came on, but uh, does it need to be owned and paid money for in physical media to go on? No, I don't think so. Um, it's, it's a good one to catch when you get a chance to catch it. Um, maybe somewhat essential for cultural literacy, but once you've got it once, you've got it. And so uh, the rewatchability, uh, it's rewatchable, but there is not necessary mm. in the same way that other uh, films are. So I'm going to gently say trash, although I like it quite a bit. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. Um, Dalton, say words about social media. Yes, if you want to tell us uh, why we're wrong and Cruel Intentions is actually a great film uh, and, and Footloose is a travesty, you can do that. And, you know, I would honestly be very interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, we're, uh, you can email us that long-form feedback because I'm picturing something of an essay from this fictional listener who wants to give us their treatise on uh, on these two movies. Uh, it's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for that long-form feedback. Uh, if you're on Twitter, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to be on there less. You probably should, too. But while you're on Twitter, you can follow us at good underscore trash. That is the place to go for uh, everything we're doing over here at Good Trash Media. We're posting links to this show, The Good Trash Genre Cast. We're posting links to everybody else's show, like uh, The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade. Uh, he just had on um, the other uh, another Randy, not Randy Newman, who he's uh, always talking about on The Wheel of Randy, but, uh, oh, uh, Randy, uh, whose last name I can't think of right now because I'm an asshole. Newman. Uh, it's not that Randy either. Uh, no, I already talked about Randy Newman. No, this is the Randy that uh, you've seen live, Dustin. Uh, anyway, uh, if you like the band Chat Pile, who's from this place called Oklahoma, uh, their their lead singer, uh, Ray Gun Bush, is his band name. I can't think of his actual surname right now. Uh, but anyway, it was a good episode uh, of Wheel of Randy. It's really good stuff. Uh, check that out. 
Uh, oh, they also uh, he's got he's also got a podcast called Catho Raid Mission. You guys should check that out. Uh, it's just you know they're not on on this network. I just think that's a, a fun local podcast uh, doing some some similar stuff to what we're doing over here. Um, if you listen to Catho Raid Mission, you'll probably hear Kirsten Thurgolson, a recurring guest over there, and our very good friend. Uh, you can find her show Twilight. We're tweeting out links to that too over at Good Underscore Trash. You can find her show Twilight right here in this very same feed as the Good Trash Genre Cast. Uh, go check that out for now. They're going to get a new feed here pretty soon, but all the all their uh, previous episodes will be in the back pocket. Uh, you should also check out, if you like, uh, let's say, The Wheel of Randy, you can go listen to Dan Wade, that show's host, over on The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Uh, they uh, just posted an episode with uh, Dan's wife, actually, who is a, a uh, retired is the wrong word, a, a not currently uh, hosting a flock Methodist minister. Uh, good episode. I really liked it. I listened to it while I was making dinner this evening. Uh, I say all of this to say there's lots of good podcasts in in and around your orbit, but particularly some of these being on the Good Trash Media Network. Uh, if you want to find more about all of these shows, at good underscore trash. Uh, I think, that, oh, if you want to help us keep our lights on, it's mostly just web hosting fees. We don't need your money, but we're not going to say no. Uh, that's uh, patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, we'll send you a Blu-ray. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do all kinds of, we'll, you can listen to us play a tabletop. We're having a great time over there. Uh, other than the time we lost audio, it's been happening to us too a lot the last six months or so, but, uh, it's, it's a sign of the times is, isn't it listener? Uh, I think I have now covered the social medias. I cannot think of anything else that needs to be said. Uh, Arthur, my beautiful friend. What, what have you programmed for us? Uh, yeah, next week, next? we don't have to do two movies uh, in under an hour next time do we uh we'll see we'll see how the fates hold up to us <laughs> i may just have to do three uh, three episodes movies in an episode next week dear god um, next week we go back to 1944 circa 2012 uh, <laughs> based on true events uh movie in development for over 20 years uh the last film from lucasfilm before being purchased by disney and it received two awards from the NAACP. Next week, we take to the skies with the Red Tails. Sick. Oh, I like airplanes. Uh, those P-51 Mustangs are fly. Oh, it's going to be great. I can't wait to talk planes. Uh, so you oh, keep God, you, you would be an aviation nerd. <laughs> Jesus, how have we gone almost a decade without that being revealed yet? Do you like no, trains, too? Not really. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Got to keep it fresh. But you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not